Welcome men to Maximus Men Striving for Greatness and to one of our final episodes of the year. This week we're joined by pro-life activist and family values activist extraordinaire Jonathan Van Maren all the way from Canada. Welcome Jonathan, it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Awesome. So very excited for the conversation that we'll be having. Uh, you're probably the most well-known person that's been on this podcast so far. <laughs> um, and, and our second international guest as well. So um, I hope, and I'm sure that people will be getting a lot out of this conversation. Now, before we begin as usual, I'll say a quick prayer and then we'll delve into um, the substance. So if everybody would join me, name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving God, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity um, to speak to Jonathan, who we know that you work through in a very powerful way, um, showing people the truth about the culture of life, about the gospel of life. And in these very confusing and uncertain times that we find ourselves in, we pray for your justice to prevail. Um, and we know that that begins with not only justice socially, but justice within our own hearts and living out the virtue of justice as men um, in the way that we lead our families and that the way that we conduct ourselves in public. Um, so we pray for that virtue and that gift to increase in our own hearts and minds and then in the world at large. And we pray all these things in your most holy name, Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. So, uh, Jonathan, I like to get our guests to give background on themselves, on who they are, what they've done, and how they came to doing the mission that they're doing right now. Uh, so we might just start with that. Tell us a bit about your story. Well, it's, it's a pretty common story for pro-life activists, actually. I was... Uh, in university in Vancouver, completing my degree in history. My uh, original plan was, was academia, believe it or not. Um, and then uh, uh, one of my professors brought up abortion, sort of mentioned it very casually as, uh, as something normal, something good. And I'd grown up in a, in a pro-life Christian home, but you know how it is. A lot of us grow up with this list of, of values, uh, a list of views that we have, but we have no idea how to defend them or, or really even how to articulate them properly. And so I went and I, I Googled the word abortion uh, and, I, and I actually saw a video of a baby being pulled apart. And seeing that video kind of changed the, changed the course of my career, certainly. I ended up joining the pro-life club on campus. I later ended up leading that club. We started arranging debates on campus and then things like that. And then as I was nearing the end of my degree, I had three different options to pursue my master's degree. And instead I was asked uh, by Stephanie Gray if I would come on and work with her at the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, developing a nationwide strategy to change hearts and minds in Canada. And so after a lot of thought, I, I agreed to do that. And it's been uh, almost 10 years now. And we, we've grown from one pro-life office in Calgary to six offices across the country. Uh, we went from five to 50 on the ground in, in just a couple of years. And we've been able to see incredible things. We now reach millions a year, every single year with the truth about abortion. Fantastic. Yeah, I was lucky enough to meet Stephanie Gray uh, because I was a missionary with the Culture Project and she did our pro-life apologetics training 
uh, back in 2014 over in Pennsylvania. And and Philadelphia, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And and I can absolutely attest to what a what a firecracker she is when it comes to spreading the pro-life message and her apologetics and her ability to debate. Yeah, it'd be, it would have been awesome working for you. She just one of a uh, fellow Aussie there, uh, Dr. Peter Singer. Uh, last yes. week, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. She's she's debated him a couple of times, I believe. Um, yeah. So so that's 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 fantastic. Um, and so obviously, you know, you said that your introduction to pro-life, the pro-life world, I suppose, came by seeing a video mm -hmm. of an aborted fetus being ripped apart. And for anybody who's seen anything like that, uh, you cannot be not changed by that experience. Um, and I imagine that probably led you to, to writing your book up about abortion, uh, Seeing is Believing. Um, would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so... When I started working with the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, uh, we, we were designing a strategy to reach the largest number of Canadians that we possibly could with the truth about abortion. Uh, and we actually, we started, we delivered postcards door to door, <clears throat> we set up displays, we had imagery, abortion victim photography on the sides of trucks, and we hired a polling agency, actually the same ones, <clears throat> excuse me, that a lot of the Canadian politicians use, to poll before and after uh, people's views when they saw what abortion actually was and we found because of of our polling data that 67 percent of people who saw an image of an aborted baby felt more negatively about abortion just because of what they saw that wasn't even uh factoring in all of our, our thousands of face-to-face -face conversations we were having about abortion and uh, myself coming from a history background the more research that i did and there was other pro-life activists who had started this research before me, like Greg Cunningham of the Center for Bioethical Reform. I realized that every single successful social reform movement, without exception, has used imagery of the victims in order to change public opinion. Mm. In other words, when pro-life activists assist the abortion industry in covering up what happens to the victims, we guarantee our own defeat and we guarantee our own failure. We live in an incredibly visual culture. And therefore, we need to compete with all the visuals out there with things that grab and hold people's attention. And the truth about abortion is, is, is so incredibly difficult to see because it speaks a truth to us that is hidden and that many of us instinctively know. Greg Cunningham put it really well. He said, when you hold up a photograph of an abortion victim, abortion protests itself. And so seeing is believing really was my attempt to put together all of the evidence we have that this is an effective tactic, uh, both the thousands of uh, stories that we have uh, from our experience on the streets, having conversations about this, the polling data that we did, the historical evidence that we, that we have, the contemporary evidence that imagery changes the way people view things. And it's, it's kind of interesting to me because a lot of people will say, well, imagery doesn't work. And I, and I often think uh, only, only when it comes to abortion imagery do people suddenly stop saying uh, that imagery doesn't work in affecting the way we think and the way that we perceive things. And so I, I put together seeing as believing as sort of the definitive description manual of how exactly abortion victim photography has the power to transform lives and to save lives. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a fantastic strategy. I used to work for a pro-life lobby group um, in, in another state in Australia and they were not so in favor of, of using abortion victim photography. And they, they always used to use the phrase that, uh, honey attracts more bees than vinegar. Um, but I, I was reading through the manifesto of, of the CCBR. Um, and that's what really 
what really won me over to um, the fact that it, that it really works. And I think the main problem is actually that in our culture, so many people don't want their moral conscience just rattled as extremely mm-hmm. as it is rattled when you see an image like that. But I, I also like to respond to the the honey attracts more more or more flies Please argument, do. which which one is an, in a great argument because excrement attracts more than both of those. So it's not really <laughs> a great analogy to start with. But uh, one of the things that people uh, one of the mistakes people make is that they confuse social reform with marketing. And so we have a lot of people ask us, why can't you use just beautiful photographs of babies in the womb in order to attract people to the pro-life message? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, First and foremost is that social reform isn't about advertising. Advertising and marketing is attracting people to something. Social reform is repelling people away from something. So Mm. William Wilberforce didn't use images of, of happy, healthy slave families reunited once slavery ended. He used horrific imagery of the of the slave ships, of the torture that was being done, of the punishment that were being used, right? Awareness was not raised about the Holocaust by showing pictures of Anne Frank's smiling pre-war family. Mm. It was pictures of the Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen death pits uh, that were utilized. The American Civil Rights Movement didn't use images of, of people, African-American families, you know, in long voting lineups and, and living prosperous lives. It showed horrific imagery of people getting beaten to their knees. It showed, you know, open casket photographs of Emmett Till after he had been uh, lynched and brutally beaten in 1955 in Money, Mississippi. And so we make this mistake where we say, well, that doesn't work because it turns people off. And we don't realize that that is the entire point. And so when we just show pictures of happy and healthy smiling babies or of babies in the womb, uh, we're actually just appealing to something that people already know. Everybody knows instinctively that the baby in the womb is a baby. That's why nobody asks somebody who says they're expecting what they're expecting or checks after they've given birth to ensure that it was in fact a human baby. We've all seen an ultrasound. We've all seen a sonogram. We all instinctively or intellectually know that the baby in the womb is a baby. The problem is there's a cognitive dissonance between what we instinctively and intellectually know about the baby in the womb and what we culturally believe about abortion, just using imagery that confirms what we already know doesn't usually do the trick. What we need is to show them imagery that challenges that cognitive dissonance and open, opens their eyes to the reality of what takes place during an abortion. And that is why this imagery is so effective. That's very well said. Very well said indeed. Uh, Jonathan, what role has your faith played in leading you to where you are now? Well, it's kind of interesting, actually, because I've often, I often get asked that question, not by, uh, you know, podcast hosts or, or by journalists, but most often by, by people on the streets or on campuses, and usually it's asked in an accusatory tone, right? Okay. Um, they are just saying, well, you're obviously just pro-life because you're Christian. Mm. And that's true, and it's not true. Um, because on one hand, I think that the, the pro-life case is provable without explicitly bringing religion in. On the other hand, I don't believe there's a division between God's truth and secular truth. Mm-hmm. All truth is God's truth. And so when I point out mm-hmm. that science proves to us that the baby in the womb is a baby, I'm simply using uh, his truth as revealed through a different mechanism than Holy Scripture. So I would say that the, the shortest, but I think most all-encompassing answer to that question is that if I didn't believe in God, uh, essentially, pro-life work would be more or less a waste of time because I don't, we don't have dignity and we don't have value if we weren't created in his God's image. If we're accidentally evolved animals, um, then we're just another species that kills its own young. 
if we were created in God's image and likeness, then every single human being killed in the womb is, is a grotesque murder for which we are accountable. And so I would argue that without uh, acknowledging God's existence and accepting the Christian worldview, and there are several other, uh, I think, faith, faith could also accommodate this, um, none, none, of this, none of this means anything. But then again, nothing means anything at all if God doesn't exist. Nothing matters if God doesn't exist. Absolutely. Uh, Jonathan, you've written a book about the culture war. And to me, it seems like it was just the other day that the culture war was was something that we could sit back as as Christians and and just um, philosophize about. I suppose it was a bit more mer- metaphorical than than real rubber meets the road sort of thing. Um, and it happened at the le- level of an ideological battle. Mm-hmm. Now you look at the U.S. election, BLM rights, and even the way that societies have been dramatically transformed by implementations surrounding COVID-19 and how it's been handled um, with the talk of mandatory vaccination coming up and many other things. Um, it's clear that the culture war has become far more real than, than it used to be for us. We can't just sit back and from a distance and look at it. It's like we're, we're really in the midst of, of this. We're really the fish in, in, in the bowl of this culture war um, and the consequences are becoming more and more dire. So how do you think this shift has happened from, from ideological to it's really real, the, the impacts and ramifications are on our doorstep virtually? Well, to be completely honest, I don't think it ever shifted from ideological to real. I think that when you say Christians sat back and philosophized, I think that's how we got where we are to begin with. Mm. Um, it's, it, it wasn't a culture war so much as cultural colonization early on because so few Christians were actually fighting back. And there, there are more than one uh, reason for this. I don't want to just say that you know, no Christians cared. Obviously, mm. many did. And, and one of the other important things to realize is that, is that progressives have uh, this sort of unique advantage insofar as that many of them aren't having children and raising families and thus have a lot more time to sort of exert themselves on, on these matters. Dennis Prager always tells this joke. He said, have you ever met a left-wing activist with nine kids? Um, and of course, the obvious answer is no, and everybody laughs at the joke because it's just presumed that they have better things to do. But the reality is that for, for a very, very long time, progressives have been engaged in a long march of the institutions. And what we're seeing right now is, is not a sudden eruption of battle. It's the culmination of many, many decades of tireless work on their behalf. Yeah. In the culture war, I focus primarily on one aspect of the culture war, uh, and it's it's the aspect that I'm the most interested in because it informs the movement that I am a part of, which is the sexual revolution, yeah. that massive upheaval resulting in us essentially trashing the Judeo-Christian values that Western civilization has held for nearly 2,000 years in less than two decades. And as a result of this, we see all sorts of different things take place, right? The First, we see, you know, widespread use of contraception, unharnessing um, sex from reproduction to the point where I talk to idiots on campus who say, what if I get my girlfriend pregnant by accident? Um, you, it's not an accident if it works the way it's supposed to. And you would think mm-hmm. that the public, uh, you know, public sex education would have done them more of a service in explaining how all this works. But since the, since contraception became not widely available, but more specifically widely used, um, we see this sort of unharnessing that, that, that then the abortion industry is necessary as, as the cleanup crew, because, of course, uh, contraception is not nearly as effective as widely advertised. And, of course, uh, later on, we have the metastasization 
of, of the sexual revolution when it went online, turned into pornography and infected everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially the cultural war was my attempt to contextualize uh, the pro-life movement and to help everybody understand that the cultural war and it has real corpses, 65 million of them in the United States, 4 million of them in Canada. I'm not quite, I'm not sure of the exact number of abortions that have taken place in Australia. Since it would be similar to the Canadian numbers, I'd say. Right, so so around four million, then. and these are real bodies. I've I've pulled bodies out of out of out of garbage cans behind abortion clinics wow. myself. I've so wow. I, I I've I've looked I have looked aborted babies square in the face. They are real people, wow. um, and 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 their own their own bodies testify to the fact that that that. that that they're real people like when you look somebody in the face there's something about a face right there's there's just this intrinsic recognition happening there and so the culture war was essentially my attempt to explain in 200 pages how we got to where we are and what we should do now that we're here mm. yeah no i think i think everybody needs to go out and read that so important Thank you. yeah um there's been a lot of information and, and speculation coming out from any alternative news sources about the political and entertainment elites being deeply involved in human trafficking, especially of children. This is linked to, you know, talking about pornography and, um, and I guess even the link between, you know, you, you begin to see a person as an object and in pornography, then you can see them as an object in abortion. Um, mm. But how, how true do you, do you think this is? And how do you think we could find out more about like, you know, how involved are these cultural elites with, with human trafficking? Well, so I, I, I would need to, I would need to um, some specifications here. So first, when we're talking about um, the, um, we're, when we're talking about human trafficking, are we talking about like the QAnon theory? Uh, are we referring, and, and which, which alternative news sites are we talking about? Um, okay, well, I, I could probably think of it. Let's, let's go with, with the QAnon theory, um, just to keep it brief, yeah. So the QAnon theory is, 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 is transparently ridiculous. And one of the reasons that it's gained so much traction is because there is just enough truth amidst all of the crazy stuff to mm. make it catch on. So, for example, when, when Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, yeah. who has more information on the cultural elites than anybody in recent memory, mysteriously kills himself in prison because yeah. everything goes right at exactly the right time for a whole bunch of very powerful and important people. Uh, that, is, that is the sort of thing that encourages conspiracy theories. Um, and so I think it's very important to point out, and, and this is very important for the credibility of our movement, that we recognize when conspiracy theories are conspiracy theories. Yeah. And because we recognize how much evil is currently taking place, and because stories like the Jeffrey Epstein story encapsulate that so potently, um, I, I find that we are more susceptible to conspiracy theories than we're used to. And trust me, things are bad enough without us having new creative conspiracy theories that make things weirder than they are. Um, right. It's one of the reasons I'm, I, I get so frustrated when people try to, to discuss rape culture in terms of you know, this apparent massive spike in sexual assaults going on, when they're missing the real rape culture, which is that over 80% of males are regularly viewing digital pornography that involves women being degraded, choked, you know, in, like mm. having horrible pain inflicted on them. Mm. Like there's a real rape culture going on right in front of us. Yeah. That, like vast majority of the culture is participating in, right? I'm sorry, when the vast majority of people are for recreation or entertainment, 
watching women suffer on screen and physically arousing themselves to that. Like, this is horrifying. And you don't need a conspiracy theory. You don't need some, you know, garbage definition of rape culture to see that this is really happening. So what frustrates me about a lot of the conspiracy theories is that it distracts our attention from the very real things that are taking place, which are in many ways as horrific, if not more horrific, and things that we really need to be grappling with and dealing with. So it is true that sex trafficking is on the rise as never before. It is absolutely traced directly to the use of pornography. Mm. Uh, pornography is, in fact, causing an enormous rise of child-on-child sexual assault. I've seen yeah. studies from Australia, the UK, and North America dealing with this subject. And there are a lot of people that are now engaging in the sexual assault of minors who would not ordinarily have become pedophiles because their pornography use has gotten increasingly extreme over a period of time until they find themselves looking at the darkest material that the internet has to offer. So I think that we are absolutely seeing a massive rise in the sexually abuse of children, but the QAnon theory is was not where we should be looking. We should be looking at, at issues like pornography, and sometimes I think that we're tempted to avoid looking at issues like pornography because almost everybody is guilty. There are very, very few people who have not at least dabbled. The rates of porn addiction in the church are through the roof. Over 50% of evangelical pastors when polled admitted that they had used pornography in the past month. And it was roughly 53 to 54% of priests in America admitted the same thing. So rather than chasing conspiracy theories that that implicate the the already decrepit and decadent elites, uh, in, in, in sexual misdemeanor, we should really be focusing on, on what's actually happening inside our churches, inside our Christian communities, inside our Christian schools and universities, because if those enclaves, if those churches go under, then the culture has no lighthouse left to guide it towards home. Yeah. I'd be really interested to, for you to send through uh, links to the studies, especially where, where uh, pastors and priests um, admitted, you know, more than half of them admitted to watching porn within the past month. That's yeah, that dis- study was disturbing. commissioned by jo- Josh McDowell and unveiled at the National Center for Combating Sexual Exploitation's okay. annual conference in Houston a couple of years ago. Okay, great, great, great. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's... Thing, I'll add one thing so people don't think yeah. I'm just being dismissive. Uh, okay. When it came out, I, I looked into it. One of the difficulties with a lot of the conspiracy theories um, is is the people accept them without digging a little bit deeper. And mm-hmm. yeah, the, the QAnon, I will say that one of the reasons so many Christians today are open to conspiracy theories is because we know that the elites are lying about so many things. Mm-hmm. So when you hear people say the baby in the womb isn't a baby, it's a lot easier for people to believe that, hey, they might, they might be involved in all kinds of awful nefarious things because they're willing to lie to us so brazenly about abortion, about the impact of the birth control pill about the contraceptive mentality. There are so many things they're willing to brazenly lie about that they have created the conditions whereby we will believe almost anything about them. Uh, But we have to be extremely careful about what information we put out there because if we promulgate false information, we hurt the pro-life cause, we hurt the pro-family cause, and we can't not do damage to those causes because lives literally depend on it. Yeah. I think it's also important to mention with that link and that vicious cycle unending cycle really between human trafficking child trafficking and, and pornography yeah. is that there's no ethical porn site that you can go to right there's no there's really no porn site that you can go to that is not tainted by human trafficking in some way or another. yeah yeah absolutely okay so let's talk a bit about how we begin fighting 
this culture war. Um, as men, um, in particular, I'm thinking um, the guys who listen to this podcast are, you know, some young single men, but also married men with children. So how do we fight this culture while also still protecting and providing for our families and having families and starting families? Uh, what would you recommend we read, watch or, or listen um, so that men can be formed into effective culture warriors? It's a very like that. That answer could take a couple of hours because, yeah. as I'm sure you know, there's there's so much there. Obviously, I, I'm going to stick to the practical. Yeah. Um, I'm not a clergy person. I'm I'm an activist, so I'll stick to what I know. Sure. I would say first and foremost for men, I think one of the most important things that everybody needs to start with is to purify your life of pornography if you haven't yet. Mm. Um, if there is more than five men listening to the show, I assume that somebody listening is struggling, and so yeah. it's incredibly important as a first step to purify your life of pornography. By doing so, you cease to support human trafficking. You cease participating in the degradation and abuse of women. And you make yourself a viable partner to get married in the first place. Because I, and I cannot emphasize this strongly enough, if you are currently looking at porn, you are not in a place where you can be in a relationship with a woman yet, you are not. And you are not in a place where you can be a father, which means that you're not ready to get married yet. Um, it's, it's interesting. I remember a 55 year old, you know, guy who, who's married, he had like six or seven kids and, and he pulled over on the way back from a pro-life talk once and he burst into tears and he told me he'd been, he'd been hooked on porn for decades. And now he realized that his daughters were the same age as the girls in the porn videos that he would watch online. Wow. And then it just, it struck him, uh, that he had been, he was so trapped by this that it had turned him into something that he himself despised. So when it comes to porn, literally do whatever it takes. Um, use every filter that you possibly can. If that doesn't work, radical amputation. Get rid of the phone. Get rid of the phone. Get rid of the laptop. Do whatever it takes. I, I get so sick of guys uh, who come up to me and be like, yeah, well, I can't do that. Like, I can do everything but that. Mm. The second you say I can do everything but that, you're already admitting defeat. And yeah. I get really tired of men who are like, what can I do to be a warrior, right? I admire all of these warriors. I'm like, you can't even stop masturbating to your smartphone, right? So like, you know what, if, if you want to start reachieving real masculinity, maybe don't be addicted to this stupid device that every previous generation of men live without, for starters. Um, and don't whine. Whining is very, very unmasculine. Find a bunch of guys to help you out and actually start taking steps to kick this out of your life. Um, one of the ways I've put it is I'm sick of hearing people talk about struggling. I want to hear less about struggling and more about fighting. Fight your porn addiction. Look, I 100% get that you probably won't do it on the first try, although I know many guys who have. Right. And look, I love smoking, so I understand that addictions are hard to break. I understand going back to, to, to an addiction more than once, and I understand hating yourself for doing so. Mm. But stop talking about struggling. Stop using the language of addiction to justify your behavior and start actually fighting it because that's what, what men do. Um, so that's a first step. And if you, if you kick porn out of your life and help your guy friends kick porn out of their life, that's a huge first step. Yeah. The second thing is consider what you can do for the pro-life movement, because I believe that in a culture of death where the most innocent and the most vulnerable people are being targeted for death, we all have a responsibility to do something. So not everybody will do what I do, um, but everybody has to do something. Everybody has responsibility to address this killing that's going on in society. So find out what your local pro-life group is. If there isn't one, start it. Um, and find a bunch of guys to get together and work on reaching out to people, commit to talking to people about abortion. Um, there's so many practical things that you can do and then get educated on what's actually going on. 
Um, I would like to I would like to sort of shamelessly promote my own book, The Culture War, but it does yeah. focus primarily on, on North America, although the chapters on the sexual revolution and porn apply to everywhere. And I believe mm -hmm. I, I have some Australian data in the chapter on pornography because you guys have some really good data on the impact that it's had that I've found helpful in my research. But start with yourself and work out from there um, is, mm -hmm. is, is really what I would have to say. In terms, of, uh, in terms of once you have a family, one of the biggest things you have to do is you have to spend time with your kids and make sure that, that you don't lose your family to the cultural. The cultural currents that threaten to sweep people away today are so much worse than when our parents raised us. Yeah. Um, when my dad talked to me about porn, and I think I was the only guy who had a dad in my entire class at a Christian school who did talk about porn, he was warning me about magazines, right? Those days are so, so, so long gone. And the cultural currents with garbage entertainment, um, with digital pornography are incredibly powerful. And so we it's a full-time job simply to fight those currents and to keep them out of our homes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the last episode that we did, we interviewed a gentleman called Paul Ninners. He's very big in, in fighting pornography in Australia. Um, so if, if guys hadn't, uh, hadn't watched that or listened to that yet, I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. And then he goes through a lot of strategies and he's actually going to be starting a program early next year, 2021 called uh, men of sexual integrity. It's something that you can run with a group at your church, um, at any other men's group that you might be a part of. He wants it to be very user friendly. Uh, and we, yeah, yeah. So we'll be putting out information about that and, and even trying to run some of those groups in Sydney um, as we get the information from Paul. So stay tuned mm -hmm. for that, everyone. Yeah. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts, Jonathan. A lot of people are thinking about what's what's just happened and is happening with the presidential election in the U.S. Um, you told me before that you're a, you're a dual citizen of the U.S. and Canada. Um, mm. So, what has happened with um, the votes, and uh, is there voter fraud going on? And and what do you think will what where do you think we'll be at the inauguration day on um, whatever that is in late January? January twenty. Yeah. Twenty. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts, and it's hard to parse through because because um, how I feel right now will retroactively change based on, on a few things that may or may not happen. So first mm -hmm. of all, to start with uh, to start with what I think is really really positive is it's important to remember that a massive blue wave was predicted. Right, this was going to be a, a total repudiation of the Republican Party. Yeah. You were going to see, uh, you know, Senate seats like Lindsey Graham's in South Carolina, maybe even Mitch McConnell's in, in Kentucky swept away. Uh, in three three Senate races, the Democrats spent over $57 million, and they didn't actually unseat a single one of the senators that they were targeting. And in addition, they wanted to beat Trump by 10, 10 15-point margins. They wanted basically the American people to rise up, wash these people out of office, and, and then hand Democrats leadership or power over the country for, for the next generation. None of that's happened, which is why the Democrats are very, very unhappy. And there's some very, very interesting and very potentially good news in the election results that I'm encouraged by. So mm. I've been saying for, for quite a long time that I believe that the future of conservative parties in the West needs to be more economically liberal, more family-friendly policies of the sort that Hungary has been experimenting with, and yeah, socially conservative. And in the United States, I've done, obviously, like I was born in the U.S. and I've done pro-life activism in, in half a dozen states. One of the things that's always struck me is how pro-life African-American and Hispanic voters are. Hmm. But generally speaking, they always vote for the Democratic Party. So there's an enormous opportunity for the GOP, the Republican Party, to pivot and create a party where they swallow those voters. 
and they become the party of the working class while allowing the Democrats to become the party of, of woke big business and the party of the elites. Now, the numbers coming out of election night indicate that that is a very real possibility because they did not, not only did the, 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 the Republicans hang on to the Senate for the time being, there's two runoff races in Georgia that have me worried, but if they, if they, if they hold those two races, um, then they're going to keep the Senate, which means the Equality Act is probably not going to happen. Court packing certainly isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also important to uh, point out that in, instead of expanding their, their, their lead in the Senate, the Democrats actually lost a lot of seats in, in the Congress, which is, which is, is really extraordinary and, and positions the GOP in 2022 to maybe retake the House. So I think the Republicans, and I know many of them are, need to be sitting back and looking at the opportunities for realignment and new coalitions that this, that this uh, election race has really exposed. And I understand there's a lot of disappointment over, over Donald Trump uh, not re- retaking the presidency, but I, I'd like to focus on the opportunity here to, to create a new coalition of voters that is far more sustainable from a pro-life and pro-family point of view than just sort of white knuckling it through through each election cycle, so we'll see what happens. Um, it was not a repudiation. Trump is losing by a very very narrow margin in a handful of states. Yeah. I don't actually think that there's widespread electoral fraud because most of most of the most incendiary claims have been debunked. And quite simply, a lot of the accusations of you know like ballot dumps of 150,000 votes, it's not just it's not feasible. Like they're not competent enough to pull that off. Right. So often what we see cock ups and ignorance and we're so hasty to, to paint our our ideological opponents as sort of nefarious puppet masters. When they're like, frankly, not smart enough or good enough to, to pull off something that large. I think Trump very narrowly lost. I think he lost because, quite frankly, he, he, he was his own worst enemy. The, the, the final polls indicated the majority of Americans preferred Trump's policies and Biden's character because mm-hmm. the guy could not shut up and stay off Twitter. Um, and you know what, the whole pro-life movement, the whole pro-family movement recognized when Trump got elected that, that they needed to have a transactional relationship with somebody who was extremely volatile. Trump's yeah. really delivered on the court. He's given far more than any of us could have expected. But like, we really need to not get swept away with the, you know, Trump is the mangled messiah. And, mm-hmm. and, and we really need to not get caught up and think that our interests are so closely vested uh, in his, you know, and it was those who gambled that a Trump presidency was going to pay off in judicial terms, but that gamble thus far, if we've avoided court packing, which it looks like we have, made a really, really good gamble. It also looks like Trump being Trump, uh, he managed to shoot himself in the foot because he, he couldn't shut up. He couldn't stop holding, you know, COVID press conferences where he babbled on and said stuff that not even his, like, every time he would say something and, and a whole bunch of Trump administration officials would scurry out to correct what he was saying, right? Like, he, he is who he is. You can't change him. Um, that's what won him the presidency, and that's what lost him the presidency. And and uh, I really don't think the mark. Like obviously, there's going to be some election fraud. It's an enormous country. Uh, in Detroit, in places like Detroit and Philadelphia, there always is some. But I, I highly, I think it's pretty unfeasible that the margins are big enough to have actually swung the election. Okay. But. The good news is that the Democrats wanted a blue wave repudiation of the Republicans, and they pretty much got the opposite. Mm. Right? They lost houses in, 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 in Congress. As of right now, they have not retaken the Senate unless they can retake those two Senate seats in Georgia on the runoff races, and they barely squeaked by with the presidency. So I think actually things right now for the pro-life and pro-family movement are not nearly as bad as, as they might seem. 
I could be wrong because if we lose those two Senate seats in Georgia, um, then it's going to be time to tango all over again. But mm. yeah, there's there's good news and there's bad news and there's more good news than some people are saying. That's good. I, I, I like I like the sense of hope in in what you're saying there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but so about social conservatives in the United States to put a major political party yeah. over the top in almost every cycle. They just haven't been voting collectively for the same party right. in decades. So if we can get the majority of people who think like you and I on life and family issues all voting for the same party, yeah. um, we'll see a political realignment that get, it just bodes enormously well for the future of, of that movement. Yeah. And how do you think a Biden presidency would affect you in Canada and even us in Australia? Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Because, like, look, like, <laughs> it's not an exaggeration to say Biden is, you know, not who he was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, he's 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 almost seventy nine years old, and he's in the most he's going to be in the looks like the most high stress job the world has to offer. Mm. It's pretty ludicrous to think somebody that's almost eighty years old, even in in the best physical condition, is going to be able to uh, hold up to the rigors of that job. Like. Yeah. Trump post-COVID was more physically energetic than Biden was, you know, having been well-rested after having spent a lot of time in his basement. Like, mm. I think I can pretty much predict how the, you know, Australian and the Canadian leadership will react. They'll act, react with great relief uh, to the disappearance of the Donald. Um, they'll welcome Biden with open arms. I understand Justin Trudeau has already uh, been on the horn uh, with Joe Biden, hugging him okay. through the phone line about what they're going to do about climate change and this and that. Interestingly Trump actually accomplished some pretty exceptional things on the foreign policy front in terms of Middle Eastern peace deals, simply yep. because he operated outside the traditional paradigm that people were used to. And at the end of the day, where I have a little bit of sympathy for some of the foreign leaders is that Trump was genuinely very, very volatile, right? He would say one thing at a press conference or in a meeting, and two seconds later, he would be tweeting about that same leader or what have you. So there's mm-hmm. probably a, a bit of relief that they're dealing with somebody that appears to be more even-handed. Um, at the same time, what, what, what I really do regret is that Trump was doing some, or at least his administration was, I wouldn't personally credit and with this, I think this is Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo and, and a lot of the rock-ribbed pro-lifers he appointed to very important rules. Um, the stuff they were doing at the United Nations was incredible, right? Pioneering the Geneva Declaration with, yeah. with 33 other countries to state that abortion was not an international right. An incredible yeah. declaration that's going to be used for years to come by pro-lifers. Um, enforcing the Mexico City policy. Uh, CFA, Austin Russo CFAM says that the Trump administration was aggressively working to, to stymie pro-choice policy and put forward pro-life policy every step of the way. Obviously, Biden will be doing the exact re- uh, reverse. He'll be sending aggressive pro-LGBT negotiators to the UN. But yeah. basically, we're going to be back to where we were four years ago. Yeah. And then hopefully, we can all pray that uh, during these next four years, a new Republican candidate who's learned the lessons of Trumpism and realignment can come forward and we can retake the White House in 2024. And, and I really hope it's not, you know, Don, I hope Don Trump Jr., one of these guys, doesn't, does not win. You know what? Uh, you know, they were fine allies for four years, but I'd like to see somebody seriously like, so like Josh Hawley or, or, one of, or Nikki Haley or one of these, uh, these, these people who are really invested in the pro-life and pro-family movement take center stage. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so um, coming towards the end of our conversation here, uh, Jonathan, um, I like to get some real practical things. You've already mentioned practical things 
for men regarding um, ridding their life, purifying their life of pornography. But is there another practical challenge that something that the guys could do really practically over the next couple of weeks um, that you might like to challenge them to today? Well, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do the thing that I, I have to do because I'm communications director for a pro-life group is I would really like to challenge everybody to start investing time in learning pro-life apologetics, learning how to have life-saving conversations. Uh, one of my colleagues at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform tells a story where a girl texted him, essentially asking him what he would say to somebody who was thinking of having an abortion and thinking it was theoretical. He texted her back and said he didn't know. He later found out that she then went on to have an abortion and she'd given him this opportunity to Word. reach out to her, but he, he didn't know what to say. That's what led him to do an internship uh, with CCBR. And, right. and uh, during his four months with us, he changed more than 70 minds on the abortion issue. So go to endthekilling.ca to check out some of the resources we've had available. But I'd like to recommend a, a podcast to all of you who are listening. It's, it's called the Pro-Life Guys podcast. It's run by two of my colleagues, Peter Boss and Cameron Cote. They're both fantastic pro-life apologists. They've had thousands of conversations between the two of them on the street about abortion. And it's two guys talking about why men need to get involved in the pro-life movement and Perfect. going through all of the different arguments that men need, like explaining how to use them in conversation, giving real-life examples. And this is a men's podcast, so... I'd like to recommend to you the Pro-Life Guys podcast, and I'd really like to challenge you all to give it a chance. Mm. Um, if you've enjoyed any of this podcast, I've been a guest on their podcast, and, and I will again. They're both fantastic guys. Their podcast is really, really helpful. So check out the Pro-Life Guys podcast and, and listen to some of the episodes because arguments that you have may help you in saving a life. You never know who in your circle, one of your peers, one of your colleagues, or, or, or you name it, that you might have the opportunity to talk to them about abortion and that conversation might actually um, save a life hanging in the balance of that conversation. Wow. So the pro-life guys, that's exciting. I haven't heard of that one before. Um, but... It's a pretty new podcast. I think yeah. they're on episode 14 or 15, okay. but it really is. It really is a great podcast. I, I really do highly recommend it. Yeah. It seems like there's a great need for that. And I know um, a lot of men in the, in the pro-life movement who will certainly go for that. Um, awesome. Also, yeah. Also on, on that same note here in Australia, we have, um, a group called Life Choice. Um, they're very active on university campuses and uh, they run pro-life apologetic training courses several times a year. Um, during COVID, they even ran a couple of um, online ones, but usually you can go to in-person um, training summer schools and, and um, weekends and that sort of thing with Life Choice as well. So I put links to that in the show notes. Uh, Jonathan, any, any final thoughts uh, before we let you go for the, the Canadian evening? Uh, not really. I really appreciated the opportunity to chat with all of you. And I guess the, the final thing I would encourage you on is, is, to, is to start ignoring all of the rhetoric from abortion activists, from pro-choice people, from feminists, about mm. men not having a place in the pro-life and pro-family movement. I would argue if you look at, at the breakdown of the family, if you look at the abortion rates, the problem with the abortion debate is it's had too few men, not too many. Mm. And so men, men were born to protect women, to protect children, to do, to do great things. And doing ordinary things used to be a great thing, right? So I would just like to encourage you to ignore all the garbage that you hear from the mainstream culture about how the only job men have is to shut up and echo whatever feminists have to say, whatever abortion mm. activists have to say, is that real vulnerable women and children need you 
and you need to make yourself a better person so that you can assist them. Maybe that's the motivation you need to kick your porn habit. Maybe that's the motivation you need to step up to get trained in pro-life apologetics and to make a difference. But this culture war needs men, which means that it needs you and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Yeah, those are very, very encouraging words. And I think that's, that really epitomizes what true masculinity is. What's what we're trying to do with this podcast is show guys what true masculinity is and how to live that out, live their faith out. Um, but a man who protects and provides and has and is doing great things and prioritizes that is not going to be put down by you know a rabid feminist telling him he doesn't have a place he's going to be like no i do have a place because i'm called to protect women and children <laughs> i agree 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. yeah what he that's said it. that's it all right, Jonathan Van Maren, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to our quite small podcast um, a, a, as a big name, as a big ticket item for us. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, like I said at the beginning, that so many people who watch and listen to this will get heaps out of it. Um, take care. God bless uh, all yeah, of your efforts. Yeah, I appreciate it. Cool. All right. Uh, and... We'll probably be doing one more episode for everybody watching and listening um, before the year closes out. So stay tuned for information on that. Um, follow us on Facebook at Maximus Men Striving for Greatness. Join our Facebook group called Maximus Men um, and join our email list in case uh, Facebook tries to shut us down because they certainly are um, slowing us down from growing, that's for sure. Um, so, so join our email list. There's uh, links for that in the podcast as well. Again, see you later. Thanks again, Jonathan, and God bless you all.